Welcome to another episode of Experts in the Field, our podcast series from the Farm States and Rural Land Team at Foot Anstey. Thank you for joining us again. Today we're going to be looking at proprietary stopper claims and the impact that they can have on farming businesses and families. We briefly discussed this topic in episode 13 of our series, but today we'll be considering it in more detail by addressing how proprietary stopper claims work, what needs to be done to prove a successful claim, and provide some practical pointers on how to avoid these uh, really horrendous, clearly difficult claims. Joining us today to talk about this topic is Aaron Jolliffe, an associate in our Farms, Estates and Rural Land team who advises farming businesses on dispute resolution and avoidance relating to agricultural land, and Caroline Cowley, a senior associate in our contentious probate team who advises clients on a wide variety of inheritance and succession claims. Welcome Aaron and Caroline, it's great to have you with us today. Hello. Hi, thanks for inviting us. So over recent years, there's been a lot more attention given to proprietary stopper claims. Um, We get asked a a lot about them in our day-to-day work. Uh, Far more attention has been brought by headlines in the Daily Mail, such as the Cowshed Cinderella, and that's raised a lot more wider knowledge uh, in the general public about these types of claims. That's why we get asked about them a lot. So Aaron and Caroline, I thought I'd start by um, discussing, first of all, what a proprietary stopper claim is and its relevance to uh, farming businesses. So Caroline. Yes, thank you, Edward. Um, So proprietary estoppel case, the classic situation, um, you have a parent who will tell a child looking over the farmland, look, one day all of this will be yours. So as a result of that, the child works on the farm all their life for little or sometimes no money, chooses not to pursue other opportunities in the expectation that they will end up owning the farm. But then when their parent either tries to sell the farm or dies and leaves it to a distant relative, they get slightly miffed. This results in the child then either suing the parent or the deceased parent estate on the basis that they now have a beneficial interest in the property. So that's the overview of the, of the general type of claim. But the claim is really, we look at it with three different elements. So we'll just unpack that a bit. The claimant needs to show these three limbs. So first one is that there is an assurance. And that is an assurance or a promise relating to a property that's sufficiently clear and precise. So, for example, saying something like, this is as much yours as mine, or this will all be yours when I die. What is likely not enough is an assumption, like an only child assuming that they will inherit the property from their parents, or a sort of imprecise statement like, I may leave this to you. It doesn't have to be an assurance from a parent to a child. It can be an assurance from a farmer to one of the farm workers. But also, you need to distinguish between what sounds like a promise and what is actually just a statement of current testamentary intention. So, I intend leaving this to you in my will or on my deathbed. The second element is reasonable reliance. So, the claimant has to show that they relied upon the assurance given and that that reliance was reasonable. So the reliance involves showing that you acted differently than you might have done had that assurance not been made to you. For example, pursuing another career or or moving back to the farm or not insisting on becoming a partner in the farming business. And this reliance must have also been reasonable in the context of the assurance. So if an assurance is made in relation to a, a field, for example, it's not reasonable to have relied on that to expect to receive the whole farmland and the farmhouse. The third element is detriment. 
And this means that the claimant has to show that relying on the promise has caused them a detriment. So they've lost career opportunities or they chose not to have a salary for most of their career and therefore were unable to purchase their own home. And then a sort of fourth aspect of the proprietary estoppel claim is what's called unconscionability. So the claimant must show that it would not be unconscionable to enforce the proprietary estoppel claim. So for an extreme example, if the claimant violently attacked or even killed the person who made the assurance, it would obviously be unconscionable for the court to conclude that the person who made the assurance should be held to their promise. So the claimant's behaviour towards the defendant must be unimpeachable. They must come to court with clean hands. Yeah, so so in terms of remedies, um, if a claimant can satisfy all of these tests, then they will have made out a claim for proprietary estoppel and they're entitled to a remedy. And the Supreme Court's recent decision in a case called uh, Guest and Guest confirmed two key points in relation to the remedies that a claimant can expect to receive. Firstly, the starting point for a remedy is that the court will fulfil the expectation. So in other words, the court will put the claimant in the position they would have been in if the defendant had done what was promised. So for example, if the claimant was promised the entire farm, the starting point is the court will recognise that the claimant has a beneficial interest in relation to the entire farm. The second key point that came out of that that case is that the courts also have a wide discretion when deciding what remedy should be granted and they'll take into account all of the facts of the case when deciding what that remedy should be. So for example the court might defer the benefit until the defendant dies if the promise was that the claimant would get something from the defendant's will or they might only grant the claimant a remedy which is more proportionate to the detriment that the claimant suffered if that detriment was minimal and it would be grossly unfair to make the defendant perform the promise. So for example, if a sick elderly relative made a promise that the claimant would inherit everything they owned, uh, provided that the claimant looked after them and the claimant then looked after them for just a week before they died, in those circumstances the court might conclude that granting the claimant an interest in that relative's entire estate would be grossly disproportionate to the detriment that the claimant actually suffered and therefore reduce the remedy to something that's more proportionate to that week's worth of help um, provided. So, for example, by reference to lost earnings. An example of how the remedy uh, worked itself out is in the case of guest and guest itself. So in that case, uh, there was a married couple who promised their son that he would inherit a significant part of their farm and their farming business uh, when they died. As a result of that, the son worked on the farm for over 30 years. He put on uh, in long hours of work for very little pay. He maintained uh, the cottage on the farm that he was living in at his own cost. The relationship between the parties then gradually deteriorated and the son was eventually told that he had been completely excluded from his parents' wills. At trial, the court accepted that the son had a claim for proprietary estoppel and it initially awarded him a lump sum payment of 1.3 million, which was calculated on the basis that that was roughly 50% of the value of the farming business and 40% of the value of the land. However, as paying this would have forced the, the parents to sell the farm, the parents appealed this decision all the way to the, the Supreme Court, which in 2022 upheld the decision, so confirmed that there had been a case of proprietary estoppel, um, but modified the remedy so that the parents were given a choice whether to pay the son now at a discount or to leave 
a share of the farm and the business to him in their wills, which would then allow them to obviously continue living there until their deaths and not be forced to sell the farm. But obviously, Aaron, we in our day-to-day work come across these types of cases and these potential cases very much in in farming families a lot. But why do you think um, proprietary stopper claim is so particularly relevant for farming cases? The examples you refer to are all farming backgrounds, etc. Yeah, I think there are a few factors that play into that. So firstly, many farming businesses are relatively asset rich and cash poor. So the majority of the value is locked up in the land and the business assets, which obviously means that the younger generations typically work on, on farms at low incomes in the hope that one day they will inherit the land and the other farming assets, which is where the majority of the value is locked up. Secondly, and tying into that first point, many farming businesses are run as multi-generational businesses with the older generation often retaining control of the business, the land and the assets right up until their death. Given those two points, uh, discussions about succession can be daunting for both the, the older and the younger generations working on the farm and this can often result in families simply not talking about plans for the future and that could mean that, that a promise potentially made decades ago is relied upon without anyone ever saying anything different, anything to to either support or contradict that. The point in time when this often then comes to a head in farming businesses is when the older generation begins to wind down and the the younger generation begins to take more responsibility for decision-making. And that can often result in a clash of ideas, risk attitudes, spending preferences, and the parent and child can then end up having a major row and all of a sudden, the, the parent completely changes uh, their succession plans and disinherits the, the child who's, who's been working on the farm, which can mean that they, they then obviously try to enforce those promises that, that were previously made through a claim for proprietary estoppel. When do these um, claims tend to come up and what other types of claims tend to be made at the same time? Aaron, perhaps you comment first on that point. Yeah, so we, we often see it come up during the life of the promise all. So Obviously, if, if the parties fall out during the, the promisor's lifetime, like in the case of guest and guess, then then you see that proprietary estoppel claim being made before their death. And in those circumstances, proprietary estoppel claims are often made alongside what are known as unjust enrichment claims. These claims can be easier to win than proprietary estoppel claims in some respects, as it requires proof of an enrichment by the defendant. That enrichment needs to be at the claimant's expense. And the claimant also needs to show a specific legal ground of injustice. But proving that it can often be easier than proving an assurance, uh, reliance and detriment. However, even though an unjust enrichment claim is potentially easier to, to satisfy, the remedy is often a lot lower than what they would expect to receive from a proprietary estoppel claim, as the remedy is, is that the enrichment that's received by the defendant is given back to the claimant. So in a situation where a claimant's been promised the entire farm and uh, the claimant's worked there all their life to improve it, proprietary estoppel claim would likely grant them an interest in the farm, at least as a starting point. But an unjust enrichment claim would likely just result in, in a monetary payment, which is equivalent to the value of the work that's been done on the farm and not being paid for. Uh, very often these also coupled with um, disputes over the partnership, terms of the partnership, what assets were or were not within the partnership, payments being made to partners, that often comes up. And there's also obviously quite often a um, 
landlord tenant question that comes up as well, where um, queries about the basis of occupation of land come up. Um, but Caroline, in, in your area, obviously you're focusing on claims arising after the death of the promisor. Mm, yeah, that's right, Edward. And I think it becomes quite a different claim after the promisor's death, because obviously the key witness, the promisor who made the assurances, is no longer around. And so proving those elements of a proprietary stoffel claim that I mentioned at the beginning can be difficult. And actually, we often see these types of proprietary stoffel claims brought alongside potentially a claim under the Inheritance Provision for Family and Dependence Act, the 1975 Act, which is also there for disappointed beneficiaries. But it's slightly harder, I think, under the Inheritance Act. Not only do you need to fall within the class of eligible claimants, but the amount that you're claiming is limited to what's called reasonable financial provision for maintenance. And that can usually be significantly less than potentially the whole farm, which you'd be claiming under a proprietary estoppel claim. We also actually see often a proprietary estoppel claim pleaded alongside a challenge to the validity of a will. So if a farmer has made a will leaving the farm to someone completely different and they made it at the end of their life, that that will can be challenged on the basis potentially that there's either undue influence or the lack of capacity and that if that will was overturned and it was passed under the intestacy rules or under a previous will, then it would be okay. But if the will was found to be valid, then there is a proprietary estoppel claim as well. So they are actually often pleaded in in quite diverse situations post-death. Thank you, Caroline. I mean, obviously all three of us um, see these claims um, regularly and they're always very difficult claims to bring or defend and also um, incredibly expensive. There's also the huge upset, which you see within the families, which is always very sad to see. And it always, at their core, is a real breakdown in relationships over a long period of time. So we good to talk a little bit towards the end of this uh, podcast about what can be done to try to avoid these claims because yeah farming families do not want to find themselves in in these types of situations Aaron, what do you think yeah absolutely agree with that i think the first point is document your intentions so by documenting how you intend your land assets to be dealt with both during your lifetime and when you die through for example partnership agreements deeds of trust a will You force yourself to make that difficult decision about inheritance, about how you want your assets to be dealt with, which you might otherwise put off or simply ignore for your entire life in some circumstances. The second point is um, communicate. So be open with family members about your intentions. A lot of these types of claims, these proprietary estoppel claims, arise because of misunderstandings. So one family member might have made a throwaway comment decades ago or they might have have made a plan in the past and then intentions change but they're never communicated so it's also important to involve family members in the decisions that you're making so that that they don't come as a surprise and then the third point really is to be honest the easiest way to avoid a, a proprietary estoppel claim is arguably not to make a promise or give a family member an expectation which you don't intend to keep so I think if those three points are, are borne in mind, that can go some way to trying to prevent these types of claims from, from arising in the first place. And, and I wonder if I could just add, Edward, that when we see them post-death, I mean, the, the court is very reluctant to divide up farms as well. And so when you have these claims and you have families arguing over farmland, 
they're quite difficult to settle because it's there isn't a big pot of cash for everyone to share out um, in someone's estate. And so I think it is worth remembering just the detriment that it can have to the whole sort of farming family and the history of their relationship on the farm. So that is something that is, is worth considering as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, some of the cases that um, I think Aaron gave as examples earlier on, I, I do remember speaking to one of the barristers involved in one of those cases, and um, I think the legal and other professional costs involved were over a million pounds. So you can imagine how much of a huge chunk of the equity of the farm went on just unfortunately having the argument. Thank you both for your time today. It was really um, helpful uh, discussion, really interesting topic, which all three of us see come up time and time again in, in very sad cases. Proprietary estoppel is a growing area of law. The number of cases that are going through the courts uh, continues to grow and they often are farming ones reflecting the, the nature of the farming businesses that um, give rise to these disputes. The claims can often be very complex, bitterly fought and extremely costly. It often comes with a bitter breakdown in family relations as we've discussed today. They're very difficult claims to bring as it comes down to conflicting witness evidence and who the judge considers to be more convincing on the day in the witness stand. We always advise farming businesses to take appropriate steps to try to avoid these claims by making clear succession plans for their land and businesses and making sure they communicate those plans to other family members as Aaron suggested. If you have any queries about proprietary estoppel claims and far more importantly how to avoid them, please do contact us. We're very happy to help. Thank you again for joining us today and please do also have a look at other episodes in the series and we look forward to you joining us again soon.